radical look at Scottish history with Stuart McHardy. Part 10, after King David I. In the century and a bit after David I died, there were four Scottish kings, three of whom had relatively long reigns. Their titles and surviving documentation are given as Rex Scotorum in Latin. This means King of the Scots, not King of Scotland, which is in itself significant. They are not Kings of Scotland, which is what you would expect if Scotland had actually been feudalised by David. Because under feudalism, the king is supreme over the land under God and doles out the land he owns to various lords, who then hand out smaller bits to lesser lords, who then hand out other smaller bits to knights, who lord over the humble peasantry, whose labours feed the lot of them. Now, David I did hand out lots of classically worded feudal charters to various people around the country, but many of them were, and remained for centuries, chiefs of groups of people who were organised along tribal lines, known in Scotland as clans. Now, tribal systems are totally different from feudalism, but in an ongoing process of trying to make Scotland's history match England's as much as possible, generations of Scotch historians have written of tribal feudalism, which is simply gibberish. This can in fact be seen in the Declaration of Arbroath, where it is clearly stated by the signatories, claimants speak for the entire population, effectively the Commonweal of Scotland, that if King Robert, and here I quote, should give up what he has begun and agree to make us or our kingdom subject to the King of England or the English, we should exert ourselves at once to drive him out as our enemy and a subverter of his own rights and ours, and make some other man who was well able to defend us our king. Now merely saying this would have been treason in a truly feudal state. It's also worth noting that the names of the nobles sign the document have names that often begin with the French de, but the second half of the majority of these names is a Scottish place name. In Scottish terms, I have long suggested that we consider the past through the prism of kinship, not kingship. And as an example, the border families were not brought under centralised government control till the early 17th century, and it was a century and a half later before the clan system of the Highlands and Islands was destroyed following a vicious campaign of ethnic cleansing after Culloden. Now, I'm not suggesting that the indigenous tribal systems ensured that Everybody lived in a form of democracy, but the focus of such structures is much more equitable than the top-down exploitation of feudalism, a point to which we shall return. That said, though, there is no doubt that in the century after David I, his tendency towards the centralisation of power continued, no matter the human cost. Kings, after all, have never been beneficent creatures despite the current psychophantic attitudes of the British mainstream media towards those they consider royal and therefore somehow better than themselves. And in Scotland as well, the murderous behaviour of monarchs towards those they considered a threat was generally the norm. Now the first king after David was Malcolm IV, who died after a short reign at the age of 24 in 1165. Like a great many Scottish kings he had come to the throne at an early age, in his case 12, which is hardly a basis for stability, and there was considerable disturbance during his reign, particularly in Galloway. He was followed by William the Lion, 
who reigned from 1165 to 1214. During his reign, he had trouble with the Norse of Orkney, various island clans, and, like Malcolm before him, with the people in Galloway. Some of this came about because he had signed the Treaty of Falaise in 1174 with the English King Henry II, after becoming disastrously involved in an armed rising against him. As a result of this treaty, much of Scotland was garrisoned by English troops for the next 15 years, and it would seem that William personally swore fealty to Henry, maybe for lands that he held in England, maybe more. But he also carried on the centralisation process started by his grandfather David I and appears to have been heavily influenced by Anglo-Norman ideas. Now, William's son Alexander II, who ruled from 1214 to 1249, carried on the involvement in English dynastic politics, even leading a Scottish army into England to help in the fight against King John. Like his predecessors, he sought to, in his own eyes anyway, consolidate centralised power and repeatedly tried to take back control of the Hebrides from the Norwegian kings. He also carried out a brutal incursion into the far north in the 1220s and then had to send a force into Argyle to establish control there. These ongoing struggles to consolidate centralised power have generally been treated by historians as a good thing, but you can be pretty sure that this was not how it appeared to many of Alexander's supposed subjects who suffered at his hands. Now the tension with England also continued, but things were stabilised to a certain extent in 1237 when the Treaty of York finally established the Solway and Tweed Rivers as forming the border between Scotland and England. The fact that this was accepted by the respective monarchs seemed to have made little difference to the border families. Some historians have actually suggested that the border Reven families actually arose because of the struggles between Scotland and England. But given the similarities between the raven traditions of the borders and the inter-clan tribal raiding of the highlands, as well as the absolute reliance on the ties of kinship common to both, I would suggest it's far more likely that the borders families were direct descendants from the earlier tribal warrior societies of the area. Now Alexander died in the final expedition against the Hebrides in 1249 and was succeeded by his son, Alexander III who was crowned King of Scots at seven years of age. Now, the early years of his reign were dominated by a struggle for control over the infant king between two factions led by the Commons and the Durwards, and this apparently lasted till the king reached his majority, that is, 21 years of age. Now, at the age of 10, Alexander had been married to Margaret, the second daughter of Henry III of England, and at that point, Henry demanded that the young King of Scots pay homage to him as his feudal superior. Significantly, in the light of what was to follow, this was refused. When Alexander reached 21, he decided to revive his father's policy of trying to take control of the Hebrides back from the kings of Norway. In October 1263, King Hakon of Norway sailed to Scotland's west coast with a massive fleet and landed an army near Largs in Ayrshire. Things were coming to a head. However, the battle itself was indecisive, and late in the day the Norwegians returned to their ships. With the weather deteriorating fast, their fleet was actually in danger of being blown onto the Ayrshire beaches, so they sailed back to Orkney to regroup over the winter, 
and the Scots claimed a great victory. During that winter, Hakon died, and within a couple of years, the new Norwegian king, Magnus, signed the Treaty of Perth with Alexander, ceding Scotland's western seaboard to Scotland in return for an annual monetary payment. Alexander now had control over the west coast and the Hebrides, but as the later history of the Lords of the Isles will show, this was in little more than name. Orkney and Shetland, however, remained under direct Norwegian rule until 1469. Now, famously, Alexander III died after becoming separated from his attendants in a storm on the way to Kinghorn in 1286, his body being found on a nearby beach with a broken neck. During his lifetime, he had apparently created a period of stability, but his death was to usher in a prolonged period of instability that could lead to a conspiracy theory or two, if you're that way inclined. Now, at first glance, he had reigned for a very long time, but for the first ten years he was a minor, and when he died, he was still only 44. And when he did die in 1286, his only surviving descendant was his granddaughter Margaret, whose mother had been Alexander's daughter Margaret, who had married King Eric II of Norway. Now, known as the Maid of Norway, this unfortunate lass died on her way to Scotland from Norway at the tender age of seven and left a dangerous power vacuum in Scotland. England at this point was being ruled by Edward I, known as Longshanks because of unusual height, and a man who had been involved in the machinations of governance in matters military since a very early age. He had already subjugated the Principality of Wales before he saw distinct political advantage to be gained from involving himself in the problematic succession of the Scottish monarchy. A man who was apparently quite ruthless, not an unwelcome attribute of the medieval king, his intention from the beginning was certainly the conquest of Scotland. Next time, not the wars of independence. 